As the fallout continues from the disastrously infamous Adria tour, the controversy has continued with the Djokovic family at the forefront of all of that. That's continued on to Alexander Zverev going out and partying in Europe when he said he'd be isolating and testing, and it's culminated in Nick Kyrgios being the voice of reason in this truly bizarre 2020. All that and more on a massive Breakpoint podcast. Val Febo here with you. Joel Fruitsch is on the other line. Before we get into any of that, Joel, I just want to ask how you're going. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm all right, Val. What an interesting week it's been in pandemic land, huh? Oh, um, it's... <laughs> obviously, uh, obviously on the home front um, here in uh, here in Melbourne, but um, also uh, seemingly um, over in uh, in Europe. It never stops. Um, we've had... Uh, We've had Novak, we've had Goran, even even Isovic <laughs> got there in the end, um, and um, obviously uh, Alex Verev now self isolating at the bar. Oh. So, jeez, um, I'll tell you what, it's it's been a bizarre week, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. And since our emergency podcast last week, we had uh, even Isovic test positive, Djokovic obviously, and his wife Yelena testing positive. The bus driver of the players in Zadar in Croatia has tested positive as well. So he was transporting the players all around. So it's been an absolutely bizarre week. Probably tennis's most tumultuous week since arguably World War II, I would say. But um, before we get into any of it, we've got a big show today, Joel. Me and you, of course, the shining lights of Breakpoint Podcast, you would like to think. Um, it wouldn't exist without us, I guess. But um, uh, we've also got Andrew Harris, the world number 204. We had a really interesting chat with him on Friday, and we can't wait for everybody to hear it. Um, it's 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 eye-opening to say the least. We won't spoil what he said, but um, you will hear it later on in the show. But it was it was action-packed. Yeah, it was action-packed. And I think, um, yeah, what I what I liked about it most is, I mean, we haven't... We've heard from a few of the lower-ranked players over social media, Val, sort of talking about how um, their voices um, in their eyes aren't really being heard. Um but I'll tell you what, when we spoke to Andrew, um, I mean, he very much echoed that, but uh, he was forthright, wasn't he? He was very, very forthright. So, um, yeah, make sure, um, we'd say make sure all, all the listeners stay tuned for that because um, it's, it's one you don't want to miss. It gives a really, really interesting insight into how um, how the ATP is going about um, getting the sport back up and running, but also really how they're probably going to struggle to really accommodate and, and please everyone. It's uh, it's a fascinating chat. Yeah, and they are going to struggle, and I think that's the the big thing from this whole chat. And you're right, we did we you know got someone that was going to pack a punch and say what he thought, and I think it's 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 a chat that I think everybody's going to love. So fingers crossed, um, you enjoy that. But just a bit, a little bit of breaking news. I just received a Twitter notification. World number 154 Croatian uh, Matej Sabanov has also tested positive for COVID-19. He participated in the Zadar stage of the Adria Tour. So that's that's another one. Um, so another one bites the dust, I guess. And um, Novak and Jelena Djokovic, I guess we can start since our emergency podcast. They're not feeling any symptoms, both feeling fine, and they're awaiting their second test on July 7. So that was from um, Sasha Osmo uh, coming out last night as well. So some, some news there, which is positive that they're not feeling any of the symptoms, but... Um, you know, COVID can can work in mysterious ways, and we've seen we've seen that over the the past yeah. few months here in Australia and all around the world. So, um, especially with the second waves that are coming now. But 
Um, it's had a pretty negative effect on Croatia. It's had a pretty pretty negative effect on Serbia. But yeah, it's uh, this this whole week has just been, uh, as you mentioned, a cluster f u c k. Um, but no, uh, <laughs> um, the the first uh, Novak Djokovic's coach. Um, Goran Ivanisevic tested twice before he returned a negative test. And I think people started to go after him as well last week, didn't they? And um, after he tested positive and he was also complaining, just saying, I'm not sure why they're all going after us as organizers of the, of the competition. But, you know, <laughs> who, who, else, who else do we go? Do we go after? They're the ones that ignored all the guidelines. They're the ones that were partying and hugging and not, not, going with or sorry not adhering to any of the social distancing parameters that all of us around the world have had to adhere to so that that's what i find the most baffling yeah no i think so val and um we were talking off air before just uh, how uh, the the promise of, of serbia has come out in, in defense of, of novak of novak saying that uh she should be the one to be blamed and um if you want to read that out you can we'll, we'll get to it in a sec but um yeah i mean um like just adhering to the social distancing measures at the moment is is really the most basic thing that, that everyone can do. I mean, it doesn't really take much effort. Um, and the other thing was, I mean, those arenas that they were playing in, those courts were were full of people. Um, you know, we know that um, the, the guidelines that they have in Serbia, they they were allowed to have some fans, um, but they still had to adhere to the social distancing. And um, from what we understand, it was. Uh, a limited capacity thing, which clearly was was not the case. So I'm not really sure how you could blame uh, anyone um, except the organisers, to be honest. Oh, 100% agree. I really don't understand. And this this was the most baffling thing. And Anna Brnovic, uh, the Serbian uh, Prime Minister, coming out and throwing her support behind Djokovic and says, full support for Novak Djokovic, every part of him. He tried to do something good, not only for us in Serbia, but also in the region to put politics aside to help young tennis players, to raise money for humanitarian purposes, to do something. Congratulations. Whether it was the right time or not with this epidemic, you do not know. But in any case, it's the easiest that all the generals are after the battle and that everyone criticises someone because he's already tried to do something good and noble, is energy. Probably a lot of your money, she said on Pink TV. Um, so this was in response to the public criticism and that Djokovic is not to blame, that the government is to blame for easing the restrictions. And she said, this is the easiest and most beautiful thing for me. If they could shift blame on me personally as Prime Minister and leave Novak alone, I would like it the most in the world. What is wrong with you? Oh, my gosh. What is wrong with her? <laughs> um, and yeah, that's bizarre. That's very it, strange. It continues. It's our fault. We ease the measures... If we, uh, if we had not, there would be no tournament and leave a man alone when he tries to do something good and brave. The worst thing is you have 1,001 kibbutzers who would... What's a kibbutzer? Um, who will criticise what has been done for, uh, for the, from the comfort of home. Um, and she goes, I'll apologise to whoever needs it. Just leave Novak alone. This is leave Brittany alone all over again. Oh, oh my God. God. Leave Novak alone. We should... <laughs> <laughs> we should oh, yeah. we should get a Photoshop of that. Um, oh my God, Joel, this is just what a peanut! What it was him. The government had the restrictions. They weren't actually. They weren't. They were pretty strict. Five hundred in a stadium is pretty like that's not many people, and that's room to social distance. Yeah. They went above and beyond that by such a long way. 
and they ignored every social distancing parameter that there was. It's got nothing to do with the Serbian government. It's got nothing to do with them at all. And yeah, I guess what I'm, uh, <laughs> what, 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 what I'm, uh, what staggers me, Val, is that, um, you know, if we take, take Australia, for example, I mean, if, um, if, if businesses uh, exceed their allowed capacity by one person, mm. then they've got uh, a pretty hefty fine coming their way. Yeah. I, just, I just find it really baffling that um, the, the Adria Tour has, have, clearly, uh, have, have clearly breached the, the guidelines and um, the, the, gov- the, the, the Prime Minister's diverting the blame onto herself. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite speechless. Like, when, when you put it that way, like when I put it that way, I'm, I'm actually, I struggle for words to describe that. Oh, it's actually hilarious. It is one of the funniest things that I've ever seen in my life because imagine a restaurant in Australia goes one one person above the limit and Scott Morrison goes, oh, that's my fault. That's not going to happen because it's the restaurant's yeah. fault. It's just yeah. common sense, Joel. Oh, my God. And and let's talk about common sense because of oh, this man, Serdjan Djokovic. Oh, my God. To put the blame on Dimitrov for causing this whole fiasco is even worse. <laughs> I thought he was going to blame Federer, to be quite honest, but I didn't think he'd come up with something this stupid and say that Dimitrov was at fault here because it was who knows where he came from and who yeah. knows who he spread the distance to. He, his, Dimitrov's agent came out and responded and said, he was isolating for three months before this. So you can say what you want. Um, this is the truth. This is what happened. To blame Dimitrov is just ridiculous. And then he's come out and said that, you know, he's hurt um, He's hurt Serbia. He's hurt Croatia. He's hurt everyone here. <laughs> Novak's suffering. It's like Novak was the one that organized that you drip. My God, this guy, and I wrote an article for, on him in the first, so sorry, Joel, and I'm taking a lot of the lot of the talking here. I'm just, I feel, <laughs> no, very, it, feel awesome. very strongly about this. But I know you fired up. I wrote an article about Serdjan in the first serve this week, and I think it, it it's some, I think the opening paragraph was something I was, not to toot my own horn, but I was quite proud of it. I said that <laughs> it, when Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest, or ever since, people have been trying to climb different heights to enter their name in history. And for Serdjan, that height is of stupidity because he constantly just wants to outdo himself every time. The crap that he said about Federer, the, the stuff that he said about Dominic Team that showed just utter disrespect in the Australian Open. And then what he said about Dimitrov, mate, you just go out of the media and out of the spotlight because you're a moron. That's all I can say. Pull your head in. And I hope, I hope he hears this. <laughs> and I, I think, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. He didn't blame he, he didn't quite blame Roger Federer, Val, but he blamed uh, he blamed Mini Fed. Yeah, I know. Um, well, I know. I guess that's kind of Federer. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, what we still need to think about is that I think this, this was pointed out on Twitter by um by Ben Rothenberg is that we don't actually know what the original source of COVID was in that Adria Tour cluster. Um, it could well have been Gregor, but we don't know that for sure. So. Um, to actually to pin the, to pin the blame on Gregor um, is is very unfair, and obviously yeah. we spoke last week um, and also in our emergency pod as well that um, you know um, who was advising the players on actually participating in this tournament. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with with the organisers. Um, yeah. That environment was created by the organisation, um, and the, you know the players went went into that. So look, I think. Certainly, all the parties have have a degree of blame, but 
yeah, the buck stops with uh, with the organisers, and um, yeah, I think we'll we'll uh, we'll keep saying that. And um, speaking of which, just I I absolutely hope that Alex Verev does not test positive in the coming days because what he did was just staggeringly irresponsible, especially um, especially after he promised that he would self-isolate. Um, obviously, he's, he's um, negative so far, but we've seen with uh, Ivan Isovic that um, he obviously has returned two negative tests and then tested positive. So even though Alex Verev is negative so far, he can still return a positive test. So, um, you know, if, if he happens to test positive, then there's there are some problems there. Massive problems because he was out partying with how many people? Luca Pui was there as well. Um, he was, yeah. Like, this is, this is a disaster. And a PR disaster for Zverev's team. And I think for him to say and to get his management to say that he was going to self-isolate for however long and continue with rigorous testing to ensure that he was okay um, and then to go out and party, really? Are you? I, I, I'm speechless more about that than the, the Serbian PM because that that's just funny. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, Maybe yeah. a virus likes a party. Yeah, uh, apparently. No Apparently, and just spreading it doesn't have it. It doesn't seem to have any concern for Zverev, and I, I, I honestly, that that action in itself, um, it, it's hard to get over because it's endangering the lives of so many people, and it's endangering their livelihoods. You know, they probably won't be able to go out and work as well if he if he's got COVID. He was around that tournament, and if he gets away with it, then you know, great. He doesn't have COVID, and nobody else has COVID, which is which is what we want. But the risk is still there, Joel. So I'm. I'm just yeah. not sure, and I don't think I, I don't think anybody could have really said it better than Nick Kyrgios, I guess. And and this is what um, our Australian firebrand had to say um, after the news came out, and people were asking him and res- constantly telling, uh, re- responding to Ben Rothenberg's tweet, tagging him in it, wanting that response. <laughs> and there was a little bit of French in this response, a few swear words, but I think it, for full effect, we had to leave him in. And um, yeah, so this is what Nick Kyrgios had to say yesterday. So I wake up and I see, I see more, more controversial things happening all over the world. Um, but one that stuck out for me was, was seeing Sasha Zverev again, man, again, again. How selfish can you be? How selfish can you be? I mean, if you have the audacity to fucking put out a tweet that you made your management right on your behalf, saying you're going to self-isolate for 14 days and apologizing to fucking general public putting their health at risk. At least have the audacity to stay inside for 14 days. My God. Have your girlfriend with you for fucking 14 days. Jesus, man. Pissing me off. This tennis world's pissing me off. Seriously. How selfish can you all get? Very strong words there, Joel. Very strong words. And look, he's right. He is right. Um, I guess um, it's... And it's been pointed out a lot, it has to be said. It's a bit of a shame that um, he took that video seemingly while he was driving. I don't think he um, was. I don't think he was because he's on the left side of the car. Okay. I mean, I, I think he was. I think he was. But anyway. No, nah, I don't um, reckon he, he would not be stupid enough to do that. <laughs> you, you, We've seen a lot of stupid this week. We yeah. really have. Surely not. I would like to think that, uh, yeah, I would like to think that he wasn't. I really would. But yeah. Move on. Yeah, well, look, <laughs> we'll move on. I, I hope not. But anyway, look. Yeah, you're right. I mean, um, we've we've said it already. But who would have thought that uh, in in this time, Nick Kyrgios would be the voice of reason? But yeah. um, yeah. I mean, I you know, I I'm very thankful that 
someone, a very high-profile voice on the ATP tour, um, was ballsy enough to come out and and put that up. And um, you know, um, COVID nineteen has really sort of brought to the fore a couple of I think major issues um, in tennis that. Uh, I think it's now forcing the sport to confront. One of those is inequality, which we've spoken about ad nauseum since we've come back on air. Um, but also this really, this mentality of me, me, me. Um, it just seemingly just, um, you know, I guess the individual, individualistic nature of the sport, obviously you compete for yourself more often than not. Um, you know, clearly that, that runs pretty deep in those self-interests. Um are clearly taking people over a lot of the time. So, um, you know, I think I think it's really exposing that. And um, I think in a roundabout way, it's obviously we, you know, we didn't want, we didn't want this pandemic to wreak the havoc that it, that it has, um, certainly on the sport, bring it to a halt, um, you know, people losing a lot of money. But in a roundabout way, it's it's almost, um, it's almost a positive that, that these, these two issues that I think are quite big issues have actually been, been brought to the fore and we're talking about them now. Yep, I think so. And that's been the good thing about COVID-19. I think we've seen, as you said, like all of these issues coming to the forefront. It's unfortunate that a pandemic has been the reason that we're talking about it all, but I guess it's given us all a little bit of breathing space and time to actually discuss all of these issues. And I think that's been a real positive from this time. But yeah, it's... Oh, it's and as you said, with Nick Kyrgios, for someone to being such a high-profile guy on the tour and, and to come out and say these things, I guess it, uh, you need that. And there's a lot of players that sort of put up and shut up and don't really say anything. They just put up with everything and they may feel certain yeah. ways, but that, they don't want to ruffle too many feathers because they're traveling with these guys for so long. And it just doesn't seem as though Kyrgios minds. I think when something's there to be said, he'll say it. And I think that is a really good thing. And um, uh, and look, with his tweet last week, no one can ever really ridicule him for stupidity or, or bringing the game into disrepute yeah. again because this, this Adria Tour fiasco has taken the cake. And I don't think anything Nick Kyrgios has done probably goes into the top five anymore of stupid things on a, on a tennis court because the Adria Tour, or revolving around tennis, because the Adria Tour takes up a lot of those and yeah it's been it's a really really disappointing disappointing week and a disappointing story for something that was supposed to be so good but um i guess the fallout will continue over the next couple of weeks or so and we'll see if anybody else tests positive or if any symptoms start showing with some of the players so yeah just disappointing but um yeah it's god what a what a what a week and and then you've got tournaments in atlanta and berlin joel that want to go ahead, like why? Yeah, well, I, I guess the important note about these tournaments is that um, the, the there's three of them. So one's in Atlanta and there's two in Berlin. But um, 450 people will be allowed into the venue in Atlanta, and another 300 and 1,000 at those two uh, events in in Berlin. Now. Um, I think from having done a bit of background on those venues, those figures represent a third capacity mm. of those courts. But, um, you know, I think after what we've seen um, with with the Adria Tour, and obviously we know how quickly this this virus can spread. I mean, that's, that's um, you know, it's an absolute given at, at this point. It's no one should be surprised by it anymore. Um, you know, I think, it's a, I think it's a big mistake. I think it's a big, big mistake having... Uh, having fans increase full traffic um, in those venues. And, you know, it's pretty staggering that even after um, the world number one 
testing positive for COVID-19, his coach testing positive for it, his partner, um, Grigor, Borna Chorich, Viktor Troitsky, everyone. We've had this, this huge shock to the system that tennis is not invincible to this thing, that this virus does not discriminate. Um, yeah, the, the fact that uh, the, the fact that they're pushing ahead um, with with fans uh, in those arenas is, is staggering, especially um, in in America. Uh, yeah. Obviously, we know that um, <laughs> they've they've tried to reopen, and unfortunately, um, infections haven't really slowed. They've probably not even plateaued. They've probably almost almost spiked again. Yeah. Um, you could argue. So, look, I'm not exactly sure what the transmission rate is like in Atlanta speci- specifically, but if you look at America um, in itself as as a case um, having like 2.5 or something million infections of COVID-19, I just think it's a, a just a, a, a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah, well, they had, what was it, 40,000 new cases yesterday or the day before. So that, that was their most in months. So um, I know that there's been a sort of a, a lot of a, a low ebb in New York. They've sort of flattened the curve, but, um, yeah. and, and you know, there's talk about the US Open now and whether that's in danger. I still think it is. I really do. Um, I, I like if they're getting 40,000 new cases and the second wave is kind of hitting, um, around everywhere, really. Um, I, I don't see how the US Open can go ahead, let alone these exhibition tournaments. I just reckon it's stupid. I, I think that the safety of people is above everything the safety of the human race and making sure that everybody's okay and that there's no more deaths. I think that's above absolutely everything. You've got guys like Guido Payer, the Argentinian, um, tweeting during the week and, and going, I was not tweeting, going on an interview and saying that, you know, it's really selfish that these guys are spreading the virus in the Adria tour when we can't even leave the house in South America. That's how bad the situation is down there. So mm. it's, it's extremely worrying. So yeah. yeah, and and I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, okay, yes, we want to get tennis back up and running. Um, you know, we want we want we want these events, you know, these governing bodies, organisations, whatever it is, to, to make some money. We don't want them to suffer. But at the end of the day, these these events that we're having now, they're exhibition events. Yeah. Um, like I, I don't think it's necessarily worth risking public health just for an exhibition event. I mean, you know, we've seen with the, the Ultimate Tennis Showdown, for example, that um, these things can be streamed and they can they can have some impact. People can watch tennis. Um, and just, just a quick uh, a quick um, Wikipedia search of um, the uh, epidemiology for, for COVID-19 tells me that um, uh, the US at the moment um, is sitting at 2.6 million cases, not 2.5, 2.6. So, um, yeah, we're certainly with um, with the Atlanta event. I really, I just, I don't think it's worth it at all. I think it's a mistake. Yeah, I agree. I think the Berlin one's a mistake as well. What I also think is a mistake is both the Fed and Davis Cup finals have been postponed until next year. The Davis Cup was due to be played in Madrid, Fed Cup in Budapest, but we're going to be playing in Madrid two months before, after the US Open. Why the hell are we going from playing in Madrid so now all of a sudden cancelling the Davis Cup finals. I, I don't get it. I don't understand anything that's going on anymore. It's all of it like, look, the Davis and Fed Cup finals have both lost it for me for how they've how they've structured the tournament yeah. and how they've gotten rid of the home and away ties. So, look, that's not a massive thing for me. I, I probably wouldn't have, like, I would have paid interest with Australia being in them both. But, um, 
like it's like it is tennis, but it's not Davis Cup and it's not Fed Cup. They're not the, they're not the same thing anymore. So I um I, I'm not fans of, of the new format. I'm not a fan, sorry, of the new format. So look, I don't know what you think about it, but I just think if we're playing in Madrid two months before, why the hell can't we go there for the Davis Cup finals? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, you're right, Al. It's look, it's yeah, it's strange. It it really is strange. And I guess um. You know, when we look at the calendar as well, certainly on the on the on the men's um, on the men's side, um, and Andrew will will touch on this when we get to it in, in a moment. But um, obviously, the ATP tour is is restarting with with Washington, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. And being played in Washington, yet they've moved Cincinnati to New York to create a bubble. Well, it's like, well, if we're playing in Washington and we're trying to create a bubble, then why can we not? play Cincinnati in Cincinnati. And obviously the next question to come from that is, well, um, we're, we're playing Cincinnati, but then why can't we have US Open qualifying? It's just, it's, 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 it's strange. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions that, that yeah. come from it. Yeah. Anna Bernabic is going to take the blame for that too, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. Uh, I think she's going to take the blame for everything that's happened. Um, I'm still absolutely baffled by that. I keep going back to it. Um, but yeah, should we get to Andrew? Cause this is a, this is a thrilling chat that I think everybody's going to enjoy. Yeah. Let's get to it. Joel, our first guest of the show today is the ATP world number 204. He had such a good year in 2019, making three challenger finals and reaching world number 159 in November. He topped that off with his first main draw appearance at a Grand Slam at the Australian Open this year, falling to world number eight, Matteo Berrettini, but it would have been a great experience. I speak of none other than Andrew Harris, who joins us on the line. Andrew, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. No worries at all. And first off, I guess we need to ask how the um, COVID-19 break has been for you. And um, you mentioned off air that you had a uh, little back surgery so um, or procedure. Tell us a little bit about that and um, how you've been going. Yeah, so obviously it's been a frustrating period. But um, before the break, my back was giving me some issues um, post-AO sort of thing. Been lingering for a while and definitely affecting, affecting my performances in my matches uh, this first part of the year. So... Met with my doctor and then got referred to a specialist um, who did this procedure. It's actually a procedure I got the same one I got done seven years ago for my bulging disc and it actually worked. It's like where they inject, um, I don't know exactly what it's called, but they inject some stuff into my actual aggravated disc that sort of burns it and that shrinks it so it doesn't bulge. Um, So I did that three weeks ago and then haven't been able to do a whole lot since, just been doing some gym the last week or so um, and then I can start hitting next week um for the first time in yeah like a month um but yeah so it's been a frustrating period but also at the same time you know to, just trying to get on top of my back injury um now's a good time when there's no tournament so hopefully when the tournaments resume I'll, I'll be you know fully fit and ready to ready to fire yeah i was gonna say fingers crossed that when the tour does come back but yeah you um you you mentioned when it does and well, August seems to be the date, but it, it doesn't seem feasible to Joel and I. We've had we've had the discussion a few times on um on the show that it just doesn't seem right for us to be travelling overseas at, at this time, especially with the Adria tour stuff. So tell us about your experiences um with how it's been dealt with and especially the US Open. Um James Duckworth obviously said that he found out over Twitter, um he's in the top hundred and um what what was the how did you find out? Was it social media as well or was it some other avenue? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously it's been yeah, a very frustrating period with no tournaments on. So you see, you know, exhibitions popping up all around the world. And then 
obviously Novak started his own tour and that completely backfired on him, um, which is, you know, kind of expected with the way they were sort of handling handling themselves with the, I know the, I know the uh, Serbian government was allowing sort of crowds, but the full stadium crowds and the way they were hugging each other and there was no social distancing and all that it was destined for, you know, a disaster in the middle of a pandemic. So I don't think that was very smart of them and they should, definitely shouldn't have been doing that in the middle of a pandemic. But, um, yeah, as you said, like, it's just so complicated with tennis being such a global sport and all these different countries and different boats and different stages of where the virus is at. So it's always going to be tough for, to get, you know, people all around the world to, you know, congregate in one in one country with all these government restrictions. And so it's always going to be a challenge. But then, um, yeah, so the U.S. Open is really pushing hard to go ahead at all costs, and that's because they don't have pandemic insurance like a lot of other Grand Slams and uh, – if they don't, if they don't hold it, they're going to be financially really struggling. So they're sort of, you know, putting the foot down and pretty much saying we're going ahead no matter what sort of thing. And uh, yeah, we had a Zoom call three, three weeks ago now for the first time, first bit of communication we had um, from the ATP and since coronavirus hit, so in March. Um, so that was, you know, fine. it was good that we finally got some communication, but yeah, it took way too long and. On the Zoom call, there were 400 people, um, all different, you know, groups. You know, had the top 100 guys, guys in the challenges, and then some guys even, you know, 400 and below in futures. So everyone had their own different interests, and yeah, so the top 30, 40 guys in the world, um, they 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 were arguing for more more than one team member allowed on site. That was their that was their biggest issue, and then. Guys, 50 to 100, they just wanted to see the US Open go ahead because, you know, they usually only have, you know, one one coach with them and, you know, 100 grand, they're not going to obviously turn that down, especially when they haven't been earning any money. And then guys outside of 100, just um, 100 to 230, 240, they, they want to call this to go ahead. Um, and then the other guys, I mean, below that, we're just, you know, wondering when the next tournaments will be, the challenges, futures, whatever they may be. So it's sort of messy with all all different, you know, groups of people wanting, wanting their own thing. So it was, it was, uh, it was sort of like, I left that call getting sort of nothing out of it, except more questions, being more frustrated. And they said that the deadline for the U S open decision was in five days. So that was the first communication we had. And they're making a big call like that five days later for the first time that everyone's even heard anything. So that was, that was really frustrating. And everyone was, you know, voicing their, voicing their concerns. But um, yeah, it's really disappointing that, that, pushing for having Cincinnati instead of US, a normal US Open and having a full doubles draw and a qualifying draw. So I think that was disappointing. And yeah, like you said, James found out through Twitter all his information. I'm, I'm the same. I mean, all these tennis journos that post on Twitter is where I get probably 95% of my information too about what's going ahead, which is pretty ridiculous when you think about it as, a, as, as an ATP member and you know, you're, the, you're the player. It's, yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, I can see why the US Open, as you said, Andrew, why they're so eager for this thing um, to go ahead. But it certainly doesn't really feel like um, a true Open. And, and obviously, as we know from this whole pandemic, there are inevitably going to be losers, especially with, with no qualifying. It, I guess it takes away that, that sort of romanticism of you know some of the lower-ranked guys and girls coming through and seeing these these stories that we love to see um, at open events when um, you know when players uh, push through and they and they make their their first main draw or whatever it is they win some games um, I, I did read though that um, I think uh, the USTA um, 
I think put forward six point six million um, in in compensation for for players that might miss through that really rigid um, entry system of the sort of top one hundred and twenty players. Have you sort of heard anything about that and how that might get distributed? Yeah, I mean, like you said, obviously, you know, there's always going to be some winners and losers here. Losers here. It can't. It's pretty impossible to make everything you know perfectly fair right now in this situation. So I, I definitely understand that. Um, what I was a bit more annoyed at was that they were trying to put Cincinnati on instead of um, qualifying. So you give double the opportunity to just 100 guys rather than 250-odd players. But, um, yeah, they did say something about um, compensating the guys who miss out the qualifying. So, But then I heard I heard a couple of things. I heard from some people that said they might give everyone you know $10,000 um, who miss out on qualifying. And then also... On that Zoom call, though, I believe the USTA said they'd put that money, they'd leave it with the discretion of the ATP to do what they want, with whether they want to use that money to put tournaments on for players or, yeah, it was sort of a bit of grey area when, with like what was left on the call. So I don't know exactly how it works if your players would directly just get paid or if it goes to ATP and they decide. I don't really know. But, um, yeah, I'm just honestly just finding out all my information through online on Twitter. <laughs> That's that's the most bemusing thing I think about this whole thing that you're finding out on social media that this is going ahead and I think um it's it's the most disappointing thing but how how I've seen a couple of tweets as well how skewed is it really that and all of the focus how skewed is it towards the top hundred players rather than rather than the people outside the top hundred is it more than what we think from from outside the tour or is it is it about the same as what what's perceived. Uh, no, definitely more than what than what people would know. Um, people outside, or people just the general public, don't have any idea of the discrepancies in prize money and all the distribution of wealth right up the top. I mean, because well, it's such a difficult sport and everything. But um, there's got to be a structure where you know you got more than just a hundred guys making a living in a global sport. I mean, we compare to AFL, you got six hundred guys in Australia alone making making a living, and in in, in a global sport like tennis, you've only got a hundred. And after that, you're pretty much losing money. So it's just, well, I think we need a system where you can support 300 players where the third, 300th best player in the world can actually earn uh, like an income enough to support yourself. Um, whether, I don't know how much money that would be, whether it's 60, 70, 80,000 a year at least, uh, or profit, you know, for being 300 in the world. But um, right now you're, you're losing probably that much money. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, definitely skewed to the top. But I mean, yeah, structurally, the ATP um, and the governing bodies need to do more. Um, need to do more to help sort of the guys outside top hundred because you know there's still a bloody good level um, outside top hundred, and you see a lot of you know a lot of the guys outside of top hundred beat a lot of the guys in the top hundred in the year. It's just getting that opportunity at the bigger events and and, and taking it and doing well um, to get to that next level. But um, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a big gap, and uh, I think more needs to be done to address that. On the actual ATP Play Council um, itself, Andrew, one thing that um, I guess from the outside looking in and sort of not knowing how the actual president himself is um, elected, so to speak, what we do know is that there is a level of representation with players from all um, different sort of rankings, tiers um, in, in the sport. Um, one thing that really sort of um, interests me is, is that actual position of leadership. I don't really feel like 
the top guys like a Novak Djokovic or like a Roger Federer, like a Rafael Nadal, maybe someone like a Dominic Team or a Daniel Medvedev could could possibly understand um, and empathise with, I suppose, the challenges that the lower ranked players go through. But even though there is that level of representation, do you feel like the actual top position should maybe come from someone who's lower down the rankings? Because I feel like they could actually really understand those challenges that the lower-ranked players face every day and actually um, probably have a greater chance of actioning those. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I think I think absolutely. Um, those top guys, I think they've all had a go. I think Roger, Rafa, and now Novak, I think they've all had a go at the, at the player council. Um, and yeah, I mean, they've been at the top for so long, they sort of almost forget what it's like to be in these uh, lower-ranked positions. I mean, I know, I know Federer... Um, you know, is all for the money at the top. Um, he might say uh, in public what, what people want to hear about. He's all for, you know, money getting redistributed to the lower ranked players. But when it comes to voting, is to keep it at the top. So yeah, I mean, I think to, to be fair, I think Novak out of all those players of the top three, I think actually is pushing more the agenda to to get more money to the lower ranks. Whether that's you know he's doing enough, but out of those three, I think he's doing the most for it. But um, yeah, I just think you know doesn't affect them so they're not that you know that invested in me well number one or two or whatever you got you got so much going on you really you know he Novak didn't even join the zoom call you know he's the head of the player council wasn't on the call didn't show his face you know the images of him playing soccer at the same time sort of thing and uh i mean that's that's pretty ordinary you know the first time we're all coming together as a group um to talk about you know us open everything so what's going on and he's not even there and it's just like that's and he's also, yeah, running his own, running his own event, you know, and no tournaments, all tour- like no one's running any events, and everyone's struggling around the world. And he's, you know, running his own thing as the head of the player council, and it's just, just doesn't doesn't rub me up, uh, rub me up the wrong way for sure. Yeah, I agree 100% with that. I, I couldn't believe that he wasn't on the Zoom call, and Noah Rubin was pretty vocal about it on Twitter as well, and. I think that that's the thing. You're the player's president, and Ruben makes a good point, saying when you get into the position where others rely on you, you have to step up. And it doesn't seem like Novak has done that as player's president in recent months anyway, with the Adria tour and what he's been preaching, like anti-vaccinations, drinking all that polluted water, what his parents have come out and said about Federer and team and, and blaming Dimitrov. It just doesn't seem as though they're setting a good example. And should he be should he be considering a resignation from his post? Like I, I don't understand. Is there an election, or does does he have to resign? Yeah. Well, the thing is, I don't I don't even know how all these elections, like how people get appointed, how it even works. I don't. I mean, I don't think we have a. I don't think guys outside the top hundred even have a say in it. To be honest, oh, like well, I mean, I, I I could be wrong, but like from my dealings, I haven't been a part of it. I've been offered a vote to for my. For who yeah, who gets elected? But I think it could be top hundred. I don't know, but I definitely think we need more of a voice for guys outside top hundred because I think almost all or ninety percent of the council are made up of guys top hundred. Like the criteria is like could be top fifty in singles or top ten or twenty doubles. Or some criteria of all, all know what the representation is for guys outside top hundred. You, you might know uh, more than me, but I, I don't actually know if we even have someone looking out for our interests and then. Andrea Good Denzi or the ATP chairman, you know, talks on this Zoom call about how he's got all our interests at heart. You got to trust me to, you know, go into bat for your interests. It's like this is the first time we've heard for you. Like, what you've done nothing for guys outside top hundred. How, how do we trust you? Like, maybe he does. So maybe, maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. We don't know. But like, 
for him to just sort of like, he was pretty condescending on that Zoom call to people outside top 100 sort of questioning him and he just sort of got really condescending and talked down on them as if like, you know, who are you? You don't, you don't know anything. It's like, well, that's because you haven't been transparent. You haven't been transparent with any of the players. Um, no one outside top 100 knows what's going on. So that's actually pretty concerning that the ATP CEO is saying that. What what exactly yeah. what exactly were the questions and what what was he what was he saying? Um, it was more just like um, yeah, I can't remember who it was. Um, one of the guys like roughly one fifty in the world. Just asked, just when we're talking about points for the US Open and how everyone on the call was against um, against having points for the yeah. US Open. There was definitely agreement from everyone, um, but. They were saying that they can't do that because their broadcast agreements with ESPN um, had it in their contract has to have points, otherwise it's just a you know a massive uh, exhibition. But then one of the I think it might have been Trungletti, I think actually uh, asked the question. And he sort of like sort of got really talked down. He was like, "Yeah, but you, you haven't seen this. You don't know what these look like. You don't know this, you don't know that." It's like, well, yeah, of course we don't. When you don't you know shed the light on anything with us, like yeah, we don't expect to be you know have a screenshot of all these agreements. Like we don't expect that, but just sort of some idea of what's going on, and just just sort of shut. This is sort of the way he communicated. It was sort of like whoa, he's like sort of you know he got pretty heated and putting him down a bit. And I just like you know I don't like to see that when you guys haven't heard from you and don't have anything to do with you, and you're just shutting them out like that. Yeah, just really Andrew. From that, it just sounds like just a case of simple. A transparency and B respect, isn't it almost? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, players want nothing more than transparency. I know the WTA are much better. They have like weekly meetings, Zoom meetings, weekly or bi-weekly uh, meetings. And Steve Simon is great. They're um, really open and honest about everything. And if they don't know something, they'll just tell you that. And I mean, you know, I know he's taking something like a forty or fifty percent pay cut and the question was asked on the Zoom call for the mayor, what, is the ATP taking any pay cuts? And he mm. said, he said no. And his justification was because they've been working twice as hard and like a quote unquote was something like, well, wow. he said something like, yeah, me doing the, after a day's work and what I've been doing, it, it feels like I played a five set match or something. Oh he said something along God. those lines. And I was like, I was like, that's, that's actually insulting to justify that as, as for not a reason not taking a pay cut when literally everyone, everyone, around the world is taking some sort of a pay cut and he's trying to justify why the ATP haven't. But the, the thing is, every every player has taken a pay cut, especially like a player in your position, a, 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 one of the ones that are at risk of not getting anything out of this whole period. So why, I don't understand why why he would come out and say that. And the money that he would be earning, I'm not sure exactly what Godenzi's salary is, but he could easily divide some of that up and put that into, like if he wants to and divide, take the pay cut and then the whole organization could take a pay cut and redistribute that to the players because yeah, it's not, it's yeah. not up to the players to like the, the Djokovic, um, the Djokovic proposed fund or the relief fund. I don't think it's up to the players. I think it's up to the organizations and the ITF, the WTA and the ATP to fix this. And when the CEO of the ATP isn't even taking a pay cut, that is unfathomable. Most CEOs are. Yeah, no, it's definitely um, not the player's responsibility. Like, yeah, it's great that Novak was trying to organise that, and that's that's great. But I mean, we got that's just a you know a band aid fix, like to a, a greater a greater issue of the um, you know just the income at the lower level is just not enough. And uh, yeah, I mean, just him just he was sort of justifying also saying that tennis players are you know entrepreneurs. That's what he said actually. He said 
you know, I had a previous job and I was an entrepreneur and I didn't pay myself for two years, you know, until I actually you know, sort of made it and successful. And he's like, I view tennis players as sort of, you know, you're, you're being entrepreneurial, sort of justifying mm-hmm. the position we're in. As if it was like, meanwhile, saying we haven't taken pay cuts, but furious when I heard that. It was just like, and he'd, he'd played tennis before. He used to be a player. Yeah. I don't know what he got to, but he was a player. So it's like, you'd think he would sort of have a bit more understanding, a bit not be so tone deaf, but, um, yeah, definitely, definitely frustrating stuff. Yeah, that's far. I I can't get over that. Um, I, I do know. I'll look up what um what exactly Guadenzi got to, but yeah, it's just it seems it just seems ridiculous. But so when when the US Open and when the US season does come around in August, will you will you go or will you make an effort to go? Or will you just stay back in Australia and uh, what do you know about what some of the other Australians are planning to do? Um. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't think there'll be anything in the US for me, to be honest. Um, if they don't have, yeah, if I'm on the US Open, I think my, if there's any tournaments, it'd be in Europe, sort of leading into the French Open. So the French have said that they're going to have qualifying, which is good, or as of right now, um, that a lot can change um, to then. But yeah, I mean, obviously no US for me, so hoping to maybe play a lead-in or two um, before French would be, is like what I'm sort of, have planned in my head, but I don't really know because, like, on the call, they when we talked about what challenges are being proposed, they sort of they, they hadn't even like really thought a whole lot about that. I mean, it was all not they couldn't tell us like, oh, this is what we propose or this is just sort of yeah, these, these this is how much it costs to run a challenger and sort of all all about how difficult it was. It's not sort of this is what we're trying to do. It was like it was just I left the call thinking, yeah, like this is more confused, more like no clarity about anything and. Uh, than what I, you know, than before the call. Yeah, um, uh, it's that's uh, I I can't get it. It's actually it sounds worse than what I thought it was to be quite honest. And uh, Godenzi did get to world number eighteen in singles, which is pretty high. Mm. So you so, think yeah. you'd think he would you'd think he would bloody know. That's that's unbelievable, Joel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just before we uh, get to some fun stuff, Andrew, because it has been a pretty heavy interview and we want to lighten the mood a bit and have a bit of a laugh at the end. But um, what, I mean, what was the season looking like for you? Because we spoke to Mark Coleman's probably a couple of months ago and he was sort of telling us that this season could really have been pretty big for him and that he was planning to really push into some 1,000 events and, and try and qualify for those. I mean, what, what was sort of on the horizon for you? Um, well, yeah, so I, I think I closed the year end of last year around 160 um and so then yeah for me it was more now starting to incorporate um some tour level qualifying um events like mixing in with challenges obviously the goal was to become top 100 um, by the end of the year and start getting main draw slams but um yeah i mean i had a rough few few months to start the year i mean definitely my body was letting me down um and that was sort of affecting my affecting my confidence and belief a bit when my body was sort of just really letting me down. So, um, it was, sort of, I mean, it was a bit of a blessing in disguise in a way, um, when coronavirus hit, cause I thought, you know, it's a good time to get fit and healthy, but obviously I didn't expect it to be this long. Um, obviously this amount of time, but, um, yeah, it's definitely wanted to start, you know, getting more exposed to that, um, those high tournaments and really just getting comfortable, um, playing those sorts of guys and getting that experience and then just building on it to, you know, qualify for those events and then hopefully, you know, winning a few rounds and then, yeah, just building confidence because I ended the year very confidently. Um, I was feeling good. I felt like, you know, if I could start the year strong at a few good tournaments, you know, you're not, you're not far off top 100. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, I, you know, wasn't playing as well and 
yeah, my body was sort of a bit, bit average and then I've, you know, lost a few points since then. But, um, yeah, it can, it can happen. It can happen quickly if you get some confidence. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. As we said, um, we'll end the, end the interview with uh, a bit of a laugh. Now, this is a segment that we haven't done for a while, but we like to do it with players because the idea of it is we want to kind of get to know the person behind the player that we're speaking to. So the segment's called Rapid Fire, and you'll get the idea of it pretty quick from, uh, from the first question, which is pineapple on pizza, yes or no? No. Oh, yep. No, I think that's the right answer, generally speaking. <laughs> Who was your tennis idol growing up? Uh, Andy Roddick. Yep, no, that's a good one. Everyone loves the A-Rod, I think, so that's a good one. Yeah. Wines or beers? Um, I don't drink beer. Um, ah. I just yes. never, never liked the taste of it. Yes, it's another beer. one. <laughs> <laughs> wine, I'm not a big fan of red, so I'd go white wine. Very nice, very nice, classy. AFL or NFL? Um, oh, AFL when I'm in Australia, NFL when I'm in America, when it's on in America. Who do you so follow in the AFL? Bombers, man. Yes, yes. Joel, Joel yes. is too. <laughs> very good, very good. What's the most frustrating thing about living in Melbourne, apart from supporting Essendon? Um, definitely the weather. I mean, it's so unpredictable. I find the Melbourne winter is very grim. Might not get super cold, but it's always like overcast, rainy, so oh, I, hate, I hate Melbourne winters. Yeah, no. Well said. I think we can all speak to that. What's the best place that you've travelled to for tennis? Probably Switzerland. Um, played a few junior events there and just incredibly beautiful. Like, unbelievable. Yep, no, it is. What's the worst place that you've travelled to for tennis? Oh, God. There's been some pretty, <laughs> pretty crook places I've been to on the Futures and Charlie Tour. Um, oh, no, that's no brainer. China. No brainer. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've had a few a few nominations for China and also Uzbekistan <laughs> as well. Definitely some, some trends emerging there. And uh, final one, if you weren't a tennis player but you could do anything else instead, what would you like to do? Um, I would have probably played AFL. Yep, nice. Yeah, I did. I loved playing footy when I was younger, but got to the point where you know I couldn't risk injuries and had to focus just on tennis. More than fair yeah. enough. More nice. than fair enough. Well, fingers crossed we see you on Rod Laver Arena very, very soon, Andrew. And um, good luck and all the best for the rest of the year. Hopefully, um, for your sake, the tour does come back um, so you can get some points and get yourself back closer to the top 100 because it would be awesome to see you there. And it was a real pleasure chatting to you today. And um, good luck with the rest of the season. Thanks for joining us. No worries. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Andrew Harris there joining us, the world number 204. Joel, that was um, that was very eye-opening to say the least with some of the things that he said there and especially um, against Andrea Godenzi and how he talked down to a lot of the players and saying that he played a five-set match every day um, <laughs> in in working. And look, it, it wouldn't be an easy job. I'm not saying it is. Being the chairman of a, of a sporting organisation um, would would be very very difficult, but I'm sorry um to say that to the players and to talk down to them and to not, and Steve Simon's taken a pay cut it seems and for Godenzi not to do the same is um was fairly eye opening and yeah to not join uh, to yeah for Djokovic to not join in on the Zoom call as well and um yeah it's it's all all very very interesting stuff there wasn't it yeah no it was it was gripping what um what Andrew said and um you know I guess. <laughs> Clearly, clearly, a guy like Andrea is is going to have a lot of work on his plate. But um, yeah, I mean, I think to 
to call to call tennis players entrepreneurs, I think is oh my not God. fair at all. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's not like it's not like players are going into are going into a tennis career like as as a startup. Um, it's, it, I mean, the, the tour is established; the, the money's there. Yeah. Um, so if you can, if you're good enough to, you know, pick up a racket, go and have a world ranking, and play tournaments, you're not really an entrepreneur. I mean, no. okay, you can be you can be a self starter, you can be self employed. That's kind of what you are, I guess. But um, you know, you go into you go into you go into tournaments and you're playing them. There's prize money at stake. So, um, but you're kind of employed day, you're, yeah, by the ATP hey, tour. You're employed by them, I guess. Sorry, continue. That's yeah, yeah. yeah no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know, it's just it's it's just strange, and um, you know, I guess uh, at a time like this, certainly you want <laughs> you want that clarity as well. And one thing that Andrew was really big on too was was um, the transparency, and um, to hear him say as well that um, he was finding out the majority of his information online. Um, I mean that that is that is that is baffling. Through journalists, um, no how less. Can, how can the communication be so bad for that to happen? Yeah, and for James Duckworth, who's world number 82, we had him on a few weeks ago to to find out about the US Open via Twitter. Come on, that that's that's ridiculous. And even going back mm. further, Naomi Osaka finding out through social media that the French Open had been postponed. The players should be the ones yeah. at the forefront of these negotiations. And the members of the ATP, and even how he said that he's he's been as high as world number 159 and sitting at 204. And how he's never re- he's never even received the opportunity to vote on the player council or for even that he even knows how it works. Um, that yeah. that was baffling to me as well because as a player and especially someone of his ranking, that as you say that in your idea that those are the guys that should be the ones trying to work it out better for everybody, and for them to not really have much of an input was, was quite baffling. So um, there's a lot to yeah. take from that inter- interview and I, I really hope everybody enjoyed it because it was really eye-opening for me and I'm sure it was for you as well, Joel. And um, yeah, Andrew speaks really, really well and fingers crossed that um, he's back. Um, I think he'd be hitting up today. We spoke to him on Friday, so he'd be uh, hitting up today. So we wish Andrew all the best with this season and for everything that's um, for everything that he's got in store for the rest of 2020 and beyond. So um, yeah, it was brilliant, and we thank him for his time. But Joel, you just brought me to a um, brought my attention to a little bit of news from um, from soccer, but it has something to do with tennis. <laughs> yeah, it does, and um, yeah, I guess we just thought it was relevant um, based on what we were talking about um, earlier in the show when uh, we were talking about how uh, the uh, the very highest authority in, in Serbia came out um, in defence of uh, of Novak Djokovic and. Um, Nemanja Matic, who of course is a very high-profile Serbian footballer playing for Manchester United at the moment, has um, has done uh, a similar thing, essentially saying that after lockdown in Serbia, the the government basically allowed um, people there to go and do whatever they want. So Novak Djokovic shouldn't be blamed for what happened with with the Adria Tour, which I think um, you know I, I just find I find hard to believe because I don't I don't um, quite buy into the idea that. A country would undergo three months of rigorous lockdown to slow the spread of COVID nineteen, and then, upon easing those restrictions, just decide that the virus is gone and just allow people to to roam free like farm animals and do mm-hmm. and do whatever the bloody hell they like as if nothing ever happened. I just don't. I just don't 
you know, I don't believe that. I think that's far-fetched. Neither, I agree with you. And look, shopping centres are open in Melbourne too. And people went, yeah, they are, yeah. you know, it's like, it's the same. I think there, there were the restrictions here. I think we're, we looked it up. There were more cases in Serbia than there were in Australia, weren't there? So, yeah, still. yeah. So, you know, they may have been eased, but it doesn't mean that they should have done a tournament. Um, you know, they were eased here and look, we're hitting a second wave as well. So it's, I think it's a pretty pointless <clears throat> argument. It's a moot point from Matic. And I just think that, they're blind for the Djokovic fans blind fanaticism for him is and I said this last week that they wow it's it's quite scary it's like a cult um and yeah, yeah even for this I, I I'm sorry I can't get over what Anna Bernabic said I, I just think yeah. that that is absolutely hilarious and that that is going to be a running joke on this show for a very yeah. very long time and um I guess it's um on that topic as well, just before we move on, Val, I guess it's a bit of a hypothetical, but um, you know, I do wonder um, if 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 the same thing happened and a guy like Roger Federer was in that in that position, I, I do wonder what what the reaction would be like. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. hope that it would be the same thing um, because it is such a serious, um, you know, public health uh, concern. Yeah. Um, but the reason I say it is because I think um, I think those three guys have such a loyal fan base that a lot of them would take some serious swaying to um, to change their opinion. And on that as well, it was interesting as well that um, what Andrew said about Roger. Uh, has, um, yeah, very true. That was um, yeah, yeah he, I completely yeah. forgot about that. That was I don't know how, but um, that was poor. Yeah. Oh, that was that was eye opening as well. So yeah, to, it was. Th- to hear that you know he's still not voting for you know he says in the public then i've heard him say it many times that the redistribution of of money is is something that he wants to accomplish and the fact that the when the voting comes around that he's not uh he's not in favor of it that was really yeah. eye-opening and it's quite disappointing from um from roger and um yeah i i was um you know and as as i'm sure the listeners know i'm a big roger federer fan but um yeah it, it took a was a bit of pill to swallow for me. And, um, but you know, if, if that, if that's the truth, then, and I'm sure it is like, you know, it's really disappointing. Mm. Really disappointing. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's this, this whole situation has just brought in, brought in a lot of, um, a lot of negativity. So let's end, um, let's end with it. One of our favorite segments in, in the show's history, the Benoit of the week and Joel, well, we, we, we love this segment. We love Benoit, and he was he was on fire in uh, in the Ultimate Tennis Showdown during the week. Those uh, those it's, he's not pink hair anymore. It's blonde. The blonde locks. The beard was flowing in France, and um, uh, he had a good week and a bad week, and it was it was a typical Benoit week. But um, yeah, take it away, Joel. And um, for who who is this week's Benoit? Yeah, so this week's Benoit could really only go to one person, and uh, that person is. Sasha Zverev for breaking his self-imposed self-isolation, yep. um, and uh, instead of isolating at home and um, staying away from masses of people, we decided to uh, self-isolate at the bar. It seems so. Um, yeah, he uh, he he gets uh, Benoit number twelve, and as we said before, heaven forbid that uh, he in the coming days returns a positive test. No, oh, he'll be in so much trouble. He the media will be after him. So. 
Yeah, big, big week in tennis. As I said at the top, it's probably the most tumultuous week since World War II hit the tennis courts, and um, it, it's been massive. And uh, big thank you to Andrew Harris for coming on and joining us. It was an awesome chat. We appreciate his honesty. Joel Frucci, of course, thank you very much. No worries, Val. See you next week. See you next week. And you can follow Joel on Twitter at Joel Frucci, Instagram at Joel Frucci as well. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod. Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook search us, we're there as well, or you can search at Breakpoint Pod One. You can follow me on Twitter at VFebo96, same as Instagram. Subscribe on Wooshka, Apple Podcasts, and uh, Spotify, we're there. Wherever you get your podcasts, we will be there. So we appreciate everyone listening in. We hope you enjoyed the show. I've been Val Febo, Joel Fritchie on the other line. Enjoy your week in tennis. Catch you next time.